I invite you to take your Bible and turn to Mark chapter 1. Mark chapter 1. We find ourselves in a verse-by-verse study of the second gospel narrative, which we are still early on in our study. So if you're visiting, you're here at a good time. Welcome. Our commitment at SV Bible Church, just to remind you all, is to preach verse by verse through books of the Bible simply because that's how God wrote it. And if we're to know the mind of God as much as possible, then we must dedicate ample time to the exposition of the word. My goal as one of the pastors of this church during this segment of our corporate worship, which as I think you can see, we take very seriously, is not to impress anyone with my creativity or my giftedness, or my speaking ability. My goal right now at this very moment, and for the next 40 minutes or so, my sole responsibility before my master is to simply serve as an under-shepherd under his authority. So I come today not as a mere sinful man. I come here as a herald. And so the things that I speak, if they are true and accurate, then you are responsible for your God to act upon them. So let's turn our attention to the preaching of the word and let's read Mark 1, 32 to 39. Mark 1, beginning in verse 32, the Holy Spirit says, When evening came, after the sun had set, they began bringing to him all who were ill and those who were demon-possessed. And the whole city had gathered at the door, and he healed many who were ill with various diseases and cast out many demons, and he was not permitting the demons to speak because they knew who he was. In the early morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went away to a secluded place, and he was praying there. Simon and his companions searched for him. They found him, and they said to him, Everyone is looking for you. He said to them, Let us go somewhere else to the towns nearby, so that I may preach there also. For that is what I came for. And he went into their synagogues throughout all of Galilee, preaching and casting out demons. The title message today is... The priorities in Jesus' ministry. Now, if you were asked the question, after Pentecost, what is the most important date in church history? Just think about it for a second. Perhaps you'd say the date when the scripture was canonized in the mid-fourth century. Perhaps some would say, but the day in 1382 when John Wycliffe translated the first English Bible. That's important, isn't it? Because without the English Bible, we would be in spiritual darkness, wouldn't we? As good Protestants, maybe you would say October 31st, 1517. The day when a monk and a mallet sparked the controversy that led to the Reformation which you are all children of? Well, no doubt, 
those are extremely significant dates, and there are many, many more. But listen to what one notable church historian had to offer regarding the most important date in church history. It's very fascinating. Listen. He said, quote, I would say that the most important date in church history was in 1909 when Henry Ford designed his Model T. I think the invention of the motor car is probably the most significant event in church history because it utterly transforms how the church operates. Once people can jump into the car and drive outside their community to a church elsewhere, everything changes. Church discipline is almost impossible in the era of the, in the era of the automobile because we live autonomous lives. And we have the ability to run away when our church comes after us. The thing that is killing the church today is surely the car. The thing that allows many of us to attend church is also that which is eroding the power of our membership vows. Of course, he goes on to say, membership vows are as solemn and binding as ordination vows. Of course, membership vows are as solemn as, as, the, as the vows that I made. But the car makes them seem so much more negotiable. We have come to believe, listen, we have come to believe that even God can be dodged when we are behind the wheel. I have said to my students at Westminster, more times than I can remember, the church has never really come to terms with the invention of the internal combustion engine. Now that's really thought-provoking, isn't it? It's got some good points. And I want to extrapolate on one small statement that this professor made in that long quote I just read. He said, the car utterly transforms how the church operates. And now I dare to assert that the car has not only affected the way we relate to our pastors and fellow members of our local church, it has radically changed every era, area of our lives. Has it not? We can hop in the car and drive miles and miles and go wherever we want, whenever we want, for whatever reason we want. Now that can be a blessing. There's nothing wrong with taking a road trip once in a while. There's nothing wrong with taking an extended vacation once in a while. There's nothing wrong with having a job that takes you out of town when necessary. But modern transportation can and it does distract you from having the right priorities. With great freedom, brings with it ample opportunities to neglect the weightier more important things in life. It's so easy and so common to adopt priorities that are not Christ-like when there are no limits to your autonomy. What we need to do is go back to Scripture and find out what your priorities must be if you call yourself a Christian. As we look at these verses today, we will see three priorities that Jesus maintained in his life and ministry. The Lord has left for us a model, has he not? 
a model that you and I must live out. Christian literally means little Christ. We often ask, what would Jesus do? Christians need to be more like Jesus. Well, that's true. But guess what? It starts with pointing the thumb, doesn't it? We must live out this model, especially in our day where there is so much going on, when there are countless activities to drive to, when so much recreation is open and accessible to us in every season of life. In other words, without question, as another preacher said, in our day and age, we succumb to the absolute tyranny of the urgent. I got to go there. I got to go there. I got to do this. I got to do that. I got to do it now, no matter the consequences. So, therefore, we fill our schedules with things that have no eternal value whatsoever And we end up neglecting the priorities that we all should have as subjects in the kingdom of God. And so, brothers and sisters, if you're going to follow the example of Jesus, here's what you have to listen to. Pay close attention to what Jesus prioritized. And then today, before you leave this place, examine if your priorities need to change. first priority we see in the life of Jesus Christ that you should model is the priority of service. In verses 32 to 34, the priority of service. Look at verse 32 again. Mark wrote, when evening came, after the sun had set, they began bringing to him all who were ill and those who were demon-possessed. And the whole city gathered at the door, and he healed many who were ill with various diseases and cast out many demons. And he was not permitting the demons to speak because they knew who he was. Here in verse 32, their narrative continues immediately after Jesus healed Peter's mother-in-law. In in verses 29 to 31. Apparently, word began to spread so quickly that there was a long line outside of the door by nightfall. Verse 33, the whole city had gathered there. And so having heard what happened, the whole city, the people of Capernaum, were determined to go and see Jesus for themselves. You can't blame them, right? You heard there was a man down the street who was healing paralyzed and demon-possessed people. You might want to go see what's going on, too. But they didn't just go see who he was. They were bringing along their sick friends, too, their sick friends and relatives. The verb tense uh, for the word bringing in verse 32, it's in the imperfect, which means that the action of the verb is uncompleted. And that's significant because it, it pictures a steady stream of people forming a long line that kept growing longer and longer and longer. They just kept on bringing and bringing and bringing sick people to the man who had the power to do what no one else could do. Verse 34 tells us that Jesus continued his ongoing ministry of service in two ways. First, he healed many who were ill with various diseases. Now, you may be asking, why are you saying that Jesus prioritized service? Well, this might be 
a little revelatory for some folks. The Greek word rendered healed is from the Greek verb therapeuo, from which we get the English word therapy. And the noun form literally means attendant or servant. So when you go to get physical therapy, the physical therapist is serving you physically. So Jesus was serving the people. He was giving them therapy. And only one night of service, he served hundreds, hundreds of people on this occasion. And as I mentioned last week, he did this instantly, completely, indiscriminately, and I must add, undeniably, in a split second. Can you imagine the responses of people? To bring along their paralyzed and, 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 and terminally ill parents and, uh, and friends and demon-possessed associates. And then having it all disappear in a second with a word by Jesus. Mark says that they were ill with various diseases. That simply means all who had it badly. Anyone who was suffering from any type of human affliction, he served them. But there's a second category. Another way he served the people of Capernaum was that he cast out many demons. Now, this is a category that's mutually exclusive from the disease. Demon possession was prevalent at this time. But it's much less common today. Now, I discussed this last week a little bit, and I will go in-depth with regard to demon possession when we get to Mark 5. Okay? So stay tuned. So if you have arguments or questions, please wait till Mark 5. In order not to sound like a broken record, I'm not going to go deep into that, but I will expand on it later in Mark 5, so stay tuned. But I want to move on here because my time is limited and I need to get to some important stuff here. Mark adds at the end of verse 14, he was not permitting the demons to speak because they knew who he was. Now, on the surface, doesn't that seem a little confounding? To tell people, not for Jesus to tell people, don't witness about me. I mean, to us, that, that, that doesn't make any sense. It wouldn't it be the opposite? Why would Jesus not, any, not allow anyone to preach accurately about him? Well, it's for two reasons. First, it's because Jesus did not want the demons to be his chief evangelists. Um, because people might accuse Jesus of being in cahoots with the devil. And in fact, as you know, you read later, once Jesus starts to, to, to collide with the Pharisees, they do accuse him of that, don't they? He's doing these things by the power of Beelzebul, right? So even though Jesus tried to, to prevent that from happening in, in his, you know, from a human perspective, he, he, they still did it. But here, he does not want to give people the impression that the demons are on the same team with him. And so for that reason, he exercises his divine authority and power to shut their mouths. The second reason why Jesus told the demons, why he did not let them speak, was because he didn't want more people to come to him with superficial worldly motives. Later we'll see that he repeatedly tells his people, don't tell anyone what happened here. 
For example, next time uh, I preach from Mark, you'll see in verse 44, Jesus told the man he healed with leprosy, see that you say nothing to anyone. That'd be hard, wouldn't it? If God in the flesh came to you and healed you of all your ailments, wouldn't you want to go tell everyone you know? But Jesus says, don't witness about me. And he says that because he did not want crowds coming to him for the wrong reasons. If those whom he healed went out to the regions, more and more people would have flocked to Jesus, not for spiritual reasons. Not to place their trust in him and worship him, but to be selfishly served by him. And I've said before, and I will reiterate this over and over again, Jesus' primary motivation and this ministry of service was to demonstrate his person. His servanthood was not man-centered. He did not want his service to become a circus, an event for people to descend upon for merely physical relief. Because he did not come to simply and merely bring physical healing. He had a spiritual priority, didn't he? And guess what? So should you. Jesus came to set the captives free. He came to seek and to save that which was lost. He came to function as the perfect Lamb of God, whose role it was to bear in full the righteous wrath of God for the elect. So, brothers and sisters, be careful, be very careful, not to make temporal things, physical things, the number one priority in your life. Christians need to be servants. And at the conclusion of the message, I'll go deeper into why you must and how you can serve. But at the same time, do not make it number one goal to have our church be known as do-gooders. Our main goal, our main goal in this life is much grander. It's much more than focusing on temporal needs. Make it a priority. Because obviously we see here the first point, Jesus did. He did serve people. But that was not Jesus' only priority, and it wasn't his number one priority. And that leads us to the second one. The second priority that Jesus maintained in his life and ministry is the priority of prayer. The priority of prayer. Look at verse 35. In the early morning, while it was dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went away to his secluded place, and he was praying there. Note carefully that it was in this immediate chaotic time in the life of Christ where he had to remove himself from everyone. He had to get away from the fanfare. And at some point in the darkness of the early morning, he had to hit the pause button on his service. And he had to devote time to the priority of prayer. And if Jesus had to stop and go away in the wilderness 
to spend time alone in communion with the Father, how much more should we? Again, Mark uses the imperfect tense here to reveal that the action of praying went on and on without respect to completion. That is to say that Jesus' prayer was a prolonged prayer session. He was very much dependent on the Father. So much so that he had to make prayer a priority. Jesus frequently did this. Oftentimes, he would go off on his own to a remote place where no one else was to pray to the Father. Matthew 14, verse 23, says that he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. Luke 5, 16, Jesus himself would often slip away into the wilderness and pray. His prayers were not short, 10-second, man-centered requests containing mindless filler words like um and ah. And would and just. That's not how Jesus prayed. Not only were they long, but listen. They were rich. They were deep. They were theological and doxological. We could go to John 17 and simply make some observations from the text. And see how Jesus prayed. Let me just read you the first five verses. John 17, verse 1. Father, Jesus prayed. The hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, even as you gave him authority over all flesh, that to all whom you have given him, he may give eternal life. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work which you have given me to do. Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself and and with the glory which I had with you before the world was. Wow. Do you notice a repeated word in in those first five verses? Glory. Five times in five verses, he uses the word glory. Now, that lofty prayer, it echoes of the glory of God. That's the doxological component. And then at the end of of verse 5, he highlights the perfect unity, the perfect Trinitarian unity that existed between Jesus and the Father. That's the theological component. How about the well-known Lord's Prayer, or better named the Disciples' Prayer, as you may have heard, in Matthew 6? Which was, by the way, never intended to be a, a dead liturgy to be vainly repeated over and over again. It was meant to be a model prayer for us. In that prayer, you'll observe that there's only one short petition for physical needs. The rest of that disciple's prayer is all vertical, Godward. So if you want to pray like Jesus, and I'm sure you do, learn to model the prayers in Scripture. Start with John 17, Matthew 6, and another great model that I've preached through already, Psalm 51. 
Psalm 51, it's a great prayer of repentance. Learn that. Model your prayers after that. Learn to pray the best way. And then make that a priority. Because I know you don't. I know. Because I know myself. And I'm like you. I don't make prayer a priority. And I know you don't either. We all fail to one degree or another in this area of the Christian life, don't we? We all struggle to prioritize prayer. And some of us really struggle to pray rightly. And you know if you struggle to pray rightly, if you pray the same things over and over again. That, that's just, that just gives evidence of an immature understanding of who God is and of prayer. So even the most mature, seasoned believer prays way too little. Way too little. One of the blessings that I received by way of attending the Master's Seminary was having Dr. John MacArthur come and speak in chapel twice a year. Sometimes he would preach a text or he would share a snippet of his pastoral wisdom that he gleaned in, gleaned in 48 years of pastoral ministry. Isn't that amazing? 48 years in the same pulpit. So obviously, without saying, he has a large, a vast amount of wisdom to share with one of you pastors. So he would also, he would also sometimes conduct Q&A sessions which would entail soliciting questions from the seminary student body. Typically, the questions would range from theological, which usually are only questions that seminary students care about. <laughs> they would range from philosophical, how to do church, you know, the best way to carry out or, or, or um, work out your ministry. And some would just be general advice about the day-to-day Christian life. And so I'll never forget one particular, very straightforward question that one young man asked Pastor John. It was on the issue of prayer. He stood up and he simply said, Dr. MacArthur, will you please tell us what your prayer life looks like? So you can imagine about 300 men on the edge of their seat, ready to hear a profound Deep, mature answer. And you know what he said? Like it shouldn't. You could hear a pen drop in the room. We were not expecting to hear that. But it reminded us, even the most mature, godly men and women don't pray enough. And we all need to admit that. We all need to discipline ourselves to make prayer a greater priority. The third priority that Jesus maintained in his life and ministry, other than service and prayer, is the priority of preaching. Priority of preaching. Verses 36 to 39. Simon and his companions searched for him. They found him and said to him, everyone is looking for you. 
He said to them, let us go somewhere else to the towns nearby so that I may preach there also, for that is what I came for. And he sent and he went into their synagogues throughout all of Galilee, preaching and casting out the demons. So Peter woke up, expecting to find his Lord in his own house, but he was gone. So he and Andrew and James and John, as well as the entire population of Capernaum, joined the hunt to find the Lord. Most likely, this was a very diligent and urgent search because crowds began to fill the perimeter of Peter's house, seeking to be healed. And by this time, it's safe to say, knowing that Christ is omniscient, he knew that these crowds started to gather for a superficial reason. They had no interest in the God-man. They had no interest in the person of Christ. They merely wanted to be served. Just like the crowds who were looking for a free breakfast the morning after Jesus fed the thousands. John 6, 24-26, Jesus called them out on it. So when they found Jesus, he had a very surprising response. And I'm going to go out on a limb and say, it might be surprising to you. Because we don't hear this much. I would have loved to see the look on their faces. Now his response was not harsh. His response was not a rebuke. But it did clearly indicate that Jesus had a greater priority than serving and praying. And that was preaching. Draw your attention to verse 30, verse 38 once more. Jesus said in response, Let us go somewhere else to the towns nearby so that I may preach there also for that. That's what I came for. Wow. Did you guys know that? Did you know that Jesus came to preach? John Calvin knew. Now, as a preacher, that makes me excited, obviously, to know that he didn't come to rule and reign as a king like David did. He didn't come to keep and institute rituals and ceremonies like Aaron. He didn't just come and bring revelation and physical salvation to Israel only like Moses. He had come to put himself in the office of the preacher. That was his primary priority. And so the appropriate follow-up question to Jesus' response in verse 3 is this. He came to preach what? Preach what? And the answer to that question is found above in Mark 1, verses 14 and 15. He had come to preach the good news, to preach the gospel of his coming kingdom. That was the ultimate purpose of Jesus. Priority. The number one priority. His ultimate purpose was not to deliver people from temporal ailments, but to save them from sin and eternal judgment. After all, do you remember what he told Pilate? He told Pilate, my kingdom is not of this world. 
In other words, if he had any intention to morph this fallen, decaying world into a utopia, to save the world from physical suffering and governmental tyranny, he could have. But that was never his number one priority. It was to declare spiritual deliverance to men and women brutally enslaved to sin and death. So even though meeting people's needs was definitely a priority, praying to the Father often was a priority, the chief priority was to redeem sinners. And with that in view, instead of remaining in Capernaum and having people come to him for physical reasons, Jesus decided to pop smoke. That's a military idiom. It means to leave, to travel to the other towns nearby so that he could publicly proclaim his word. And if he was going to complete his primary mission to rescue sinners from hell, then he had to preach. Right? The physical healing, they they weren't going to save anybody, right? Praying wasn't going to save anybody. It's through the means of preaching that God saves. And guess what? It's still true today. Preaching is still the means God uses to save his sinners. When was the last time you read Romans 10, verses 13 to 15? For whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. We're good Baptists. We know that one, okay? But what does it say after that? How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? How will they believe in him whom they have not heard? And how will they hear without a preacher? How will they preach unless they are sent? Just as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news of good things. And then verse 17. So faith comes from hearing... And hearing by the word of Christ. The implications of that truth are clear, are they not? Not only must we have a high view of preaching because our Lord made it his number one priority, but you must have a high view of preaching because it's the preaching of the word that miraculously transforms sinners. From being a spiritual corpse to a living, breathing, spiritual subject. Preaching. It was the Lord's number one priority. Praying and serving were also a priority, but they were second to preaching. So to to conclude today, I'm going to simply ask you, what are your priorities? Do you prioritize service? 
Not only should you make service a priority because that's the model that Christ left for us, left for us, but allow me to shepherd you a little bit here. Everybody listen. Did you know that it's sinful not to serve? Galatians 5.13 For you were called to freedom, brethren. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. That's a command. 1 Peter 4, verse 10. As each one has received a special gift, employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold of the grace of God. The spiritual gift that God has given you, you are commanded to be stewards of it. And if you don't use it, you're being a bad steward of the grace of God. Now, if you don't know because you haven't been taught these things or if you forgot what your gift is, go go and study Romans 12 and 1 Corinthians 12. And if you're not serving the body, repent. And start obeying Christ. Follow the model he left for us. Be a good steward. And start prioritizing the needs of the church. Do you prioritize service? Do you prioritize prayer? Did you know that it's sinful not to pray regularly? 1 Thessalonians 5, 16-18 commands to rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. In everything, everything, we don't we skip over that one, don't we? In everything, give thanks. For this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. It's God's will for you to pray. Now, just like me, I know that you can make prayer a greater priority in your life. Now, lastly. Do you make the hearing and application of sound preaching a priority? Or could you take it or leave it? Do you scoff at it? Do you not see the role that it plays in your life? Do you realize that it's woefully detrimental to your soul if you don't take in a steady diet of preaching? Without sound preaching, the church would have not been formed, the church would not have grown, and the church would never have been reformed. The sanctification and justification of souls has always come to fruition by means of a man proclaiming the word of God. Listen to a very thought-provoking quote from the doctor, Martin Lloyd-Jones. In his famous book, Preaching and Preachers, he says this. Is it not clear? As you take a bird's eye view of church history from Acts to the era of the Puritans, that the corrupt periods and eras in church history have always been those periods when preaching has declined. 
What is it that always heralds the dawn of a reformation or of a revival? It is renewed preaching. A revival of true preaching has always heralded these great movements in the history of the church. So make preaching the hearing and application a priority. Make it a priority. If you have to, train your mind to rebuff and throw away the common, prevalent notion that preaching is not central to the church. That is a lie. Preaching must be a priority because Jesus came for that reason. And secondly, church history reveals it. So I pray that our church, you individually, will walk out of here today making service, prayer, and preaching a priority, just like Jesus did. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. I pray for all these precious people here right now to be convicted, to be moved, to, to not grow weary in doing good. There are so many servants here today. And I praise God, I praise you for them. But Father, I know there are people here that also are not serving at all. Perhaps because they just don't know. Perhaps they're embittered. Perhaps, perhaps they're tired. But Lord, may we never stop being a servant. Because that's the model you left. May we pray. May we pray and pray and pray more and more. May we be soft and receptive to good preaching, for that is the means by which you have declared and ordained to save and sanctify sinners and saints. Once again, Lord, I thank you for this time together. We want it for your glory alone. 